It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now that the dust has settled, now that all those people who got emotional yesterday have calmed down, we await to the news uh, that the day is full of gloomy skies. There's rain uh, and there's lots of unanswered questions. Following yesterday's news of the first approvals for an anti-Covid vaccine in the UK, the facts are beginning to settle down. And here's where we are. The same old questions still remain unanswered. Is the vaccine going to be mandatory? Boris Johnson says it isn't. Well, that's good. Are people who refuse to take it going to be continually referred to as anti-vaxxers? That would seem to be the case, and that's not so good. Is there going to be a consistent campaign by the medical establishment to demonise anyone who questions it? That's also not so good. How about these questions? Do people who have had COVID need to get the vaccine? Nobody seems to know. Do young people who are least at risk need to get it? Do children need to get it? If you listen to JVT, as Jonathan Van Tam seems to now be called by all and sundry, as if he's some kind of medical superhero uh, with a gown, with a mask, uh, with a needle, right? His doe-eyed crusade is all about being in it together. He's doing a sort of a a world tour this morning of television studios to try and tell everyone uh, how brilliant he is and to try and tell everyone how pathetically useless uh, the government are. I think he's going to make a couple of blunders. I think he's going to drop everybody uh, in the doo-doo and it's going to look like a very, very bad idea by about one o'clock, I would say. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against getting the vaccine out to as many people as possible, but when we read that Wales is thinking of bringing in some kind of ID system for people who have had it, the hackles of freedom start to stand up on the back of my neck, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk to our man on the other side of Offers Dyke. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll also find out just how soon everyone is going to be offered the vaccine and how it will be distributed. We'll be talking uh, to a man who knows a thing or two about military logistics and we'll be asking Helen Dale, author and a commentator, of course, just how far freedoms have been eroded in Australia for the sake of the nation's health. And should we be doing the same things? 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, back in the land of the Green Industrial Revolution, the Prime Minister is tilting himself at your gas boiler. Apparently, it's not good enough to stop driving around in petrol and diesel guzzling cars. He wants you to get rid of your gas boiler and replace it with a heat pump or hydrogen. Don't worry, it'll only set you back about 15 grand. 
Marvellous, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. Madness doesn't even cover it. We're also joined by Lewis McLeod from Bonnie Scotland and Donna Harvey all the way from California. She'll bring us the latest on the US of A situation. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, a couple of people brought to my attention late yesterday that there was news emanating from Wales, uh, where Mark Drakeford seems to be going ever more and more insane, uh, that basically people who have had the vaccine should have some kind of ID card to show to anyone who asked them whether they've had the vaccine. Now, I'm not quite sure how this is going to work, because, of course, as we said yesterday, what we do know now uh, about this first vaccine, which is being made available from possibly as soon as next week, is that it's not going to be made available to the general public. It's only going to be made available to people in hospital it would seem so presumably that means it covers um, not only the uh, the people who are in as patients but it also covers the people uh, who are in fact working there as well but the members of the public who are awaiting a vaccine will not get one for a very long time so the idea that anyone's going to have an id card to show that they've had the vaccine in wales seems to me to be a bit of a non-starter We'd like to hear from you, of course, 03444991000. Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, though, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics. He's in Wales um, and he may have a view on it. Jamie, very good morning to you. Uh, morning, Mike. So um, everyone was rather sort of doe-eyed and emotional yesterday, it seems. But like all of these things, uh, life returns to normal the day after. And you look out and, and it's all a bit gloomy and dark out there. And we still got a lot of questions that nobody seems to know the answers to. Well, yeah, I, I think um, what the announcement potentially in Wales of having this this card, it does kind of illustrate the kind of the fractured mindset of the the politicians with COVID. That devolution is just meaning different things in different parts of the country. Because when when I saw the announcement, one of the things I was thinking, okay, well, what is the purpose of it? So one would argue that if you've got this um, this kind of credit card proof that you've had a vaccine. Would that then mean that if you want to go to the theatre, a football match, rugby match, etc., uh, they know you've had the vaccine, so you're a low risk, so you can enter? But um, just let's take a Wales rugby match. Then you might have thousands of Welsh people living in England who've had a vaccine in England, don't right. have a credit card style thing. So how's that going to work? And and one of the things I think the principles of medical information is normally is confidential. So if you've had a vaccine or not, um, should you have to prove that you've had a vaccine to go about your normal daily yeah. lives? And I think the point you've just made as well that it's going to be many, many months anyway before the general population would get the kind of the vaccine. So um, I suppose, what are they playing at? Well, it's a bit of pie in the sky, isn't it, with the Welsh uh, government, it seems to me. They seem to be sort of plucking bits of law out of nowhere. Like, for example, when Mark Drakeford said that he didn't want anyone coming to Wales from England, therefore he was going to ban them from doing so. When he can't really do that, can he? Well, there does seem to be a kind of a lot of politics at play. I think part of the reason, personally, I think in Wales that we've had different approaches to managing the virus. So if you think you've got the tiered systems coming in England uh, this week, in Wales at the moment, they've on Friday, they're closing all the hospitality sector. So tomorrow with a national approach right. where we know in the northwest of Wales, there's fewer cases in the northwest of Wales than there is in Cornwall, for example. So we go in for this national approach to be different to England. Uh, we've got this approach with the vaccine and then this car to be with, to be different for England. I suppose as a resident of Wales myself, I find it kind of strange that you've got say the, the same advice being given in, in wales at the moment mark drakeford seems to be conveniently quoting sage a lot at the moment whereas he didn't quote sage a lot at the start when it wasn't convenient no so it just seems to be a lot of politics at play and going back to the kind of the vaccine card 
I, I think the, the critical thing there is we don't have to show our cards for every everything else, but it could have a positive thing, Mike, if, if it means that you can enter venues. But what if that means you can't go to an event because you're low down on the vaccine list? Because obviously access to the vaccine is going to be done based on who are the most vulnerable. So if you're, say, a 30-year-old man and you're not going to get the vaccine till next August, does that mean you can't go to the pub then because you haven't had a chance to get this card? Right. So it does seem very strange that in terms of how these kind of decisions are being made. Well, exactly right. And also, I mean, from the point of view just of, of libertarianism and, and freedoms uh, and all of those things that people are concerned about, you know, for them just to introduce this as an idea seems quite sinister to me. Well, we've, we've known they've tried to introduce, uh, well, there's been ideas to introduce, just say, ID cards uh, nationally for, for many years. And, and you can't just introduce that. You've normally got to go through scrutinisation in Parliament, etc. So, yeah, just to kind of come up with a policy and introduce it. I think one of my concerns uh, in Wales recently has been that I know in England, uh, Boris Johnson has had to get a vote passed to bring in the tiered restrictions. In Wales, we seem to be having these restrictions imposed on, on the population. And there's no actual vote even within the Welsh Parliament going on on some of these things. So mm. it just seems to smack in, in the face of democracy, I think. Well, that's right. And I mean, as far as the way that they're going to shut down all the pubs, the idea that uh, that you're trying to run a business in Wales, right, when most of uh, 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 parts of Britain are kind of at least able to open pubs, you know, unless you're in tier three. Basically, these people in Wales who own pubs are going, well, I can only open the pub and sell food and soft drinks why have they got this sort of kind of obsession with stopping people from drinking well they, they cite some evidence that obviously means that when you're drinking a lot social distancing becomes more difficult i think mike for me what kind of the, the policy seems rather bizarre is that okay let's let's take soft drinks and, and a meal etc so you can go into a pub uh in the exact same venue at two o'clock in the afternoon and buy a soft drink but you can't go and do the exact same thing at seven o'clock in the evening. And, and I'm not sure if COVID decides to switch off at, or come up, come alive at six o'clock in the evening. So there's these arbitrary decisions. Now, the Welsh government would argue that when you introduce restrictions and close hospitality, cases come down. Uh, but we know even within Wales itself that we've got this exactly the same as England, Mike. We've got a huge variation that the very the parts of the Wales where I'm living at the moment, towards the south and mm. in the Welsh valleys, much, much higher than the northwest of Wales. If I was a publican in the northwest of Wales, I would be really, really fed up with the way the policy is being made because yeah. it seems to be a blanket approach. And the, the, there's a lot of call for, for evidence on some of this. So a couple of days ago... Um, um, the local BBC station in Wales asked, I think, the, the Welsh government to put up the chief medical officer. Mm. Uh, they they asked them to put up the kind of the, the chief scientific officer. They asked them to put up um, the ministers. None of them would speak about the evidence. So I stepped in to try and talk through what evidence that is. And it was very difficult to find a lot. But when you're actually putting the policies together, there's very little evidence being shared with the public. And that's why, Mike, if you don't have the evidence to back up what you're doing, um, you start losing the public's confidence. Yes, exactly right. Because, I mean, you'll know from your uh, time in, in, in dealing with all the statistics that you and I have spoken about in the past that they can always find statistics to, to work on. I mean, I'm told that SAGE in London have been working on a, a study that was done somewhere in Indonesia in a nightclub as to how those kind of uh, people are affected by drinking, which is barely at all anything like the experience of drinking in a pub in this country. Well, that's the information I found. So it was four days or five days ago now, or the 27th, it might be six days now, but they issued what they'd called a policy paper of the UK government. But it's not really a policy paper. It's it's a web page with, with about four or five paragraphs citing Indonesia. They also cited some South Korean nightclubs. 
super spreading events in weddings and thing in Hong Kong, etc. Right. So I think you've got to bring it a bit closer to home. I, you know, I think it's it's quite clear that you've got um, a higher risk potentially if you are mixing with people. But this policy in itself could have kind of alternative consequences. Is that you can't go and meet friends in the pub where, for example, if you had a pub and people weren't socially distancing, weren't following the rules, weren't doing track and trace, policemen can walk in and say, come on, guys, you need to sort this out. Right. Whereas now, you could be getting people going to the supermarkets, all coming around their, their houses, and having kind of indoor drinking events where it's, there's no scrutiny going on at all. So right. you could have the alternative effect where closing the pubs increases the spread of the virus because people will start mixing. And we know in December... It's not like June and in July where people would go around people's houses and gardens and they're all congregating outside. Right. It's too cold to do that now, mm. Mike. So are we going to see the consequences of closing all of the hospitality sector increases? Because we do know that in December time, people will want to get together because that's what people do. Exactly. And I mean, people always do find a way to get a drink in this country because it's one of the things that we do. I was in a pub yesterday and you could not have had a more COVID safe uh, atmosphere you know there were people sitting at tables very far distance from one another there was no bar service the people came to you and you ordered a drink and they brought it to you it was contactless payments only you know and there was certainly nothing like what michael gove described the other day when he was on with julie hartley brewer you know people sort of standing close to each other at the bar i don't know where he was to see that and to and to see that recently but you know it was it was about as safe as you could ever get well well if you're quoting the the, the kind of the evidence from nightclubs in the far east where I think cases were relatively low and then they obviously kicked up a bit because there was nightclub. Obviously, the experience you've described there, Mike, is totally different yeah. to a nightclub where by design in a nightclub is dancing, close contact, etc., that, that kind of stuff. So using that evidence to say closed pubs in, in Wales does seem rather strange. Mm, it really does. And how long are they going to be shut for over there? Is it two weeks again? Well, the talk is to close them and review them just before Christmas. Now, right. I think the difficulty you'll have is we know when any policy you introduce, there's a time lag. Mm. So even if they close the pubs and if, if the cases are still going up, they'll be used as an excuse potentially to continue. Now, I've heard rumours that they're probably going to continue with this until the middle of January. Right. And we know right. that the UK government as and the devolved countries have allowed people to mix around Christmas time. Mm. And inevitably, that will probably increase the spread of the virus. And then there may be some stringent fire breaks, lockdowns all through January for, on the back of that. So so if you're a publican or just running any hospitality in Wales at the moment, it looks pretty bleak, I think, from now until January. And obviously coming back to the to the vaccine situation, yeah. the vaccine offers a hope. But it's, I still think it's going to be you know a long time before the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this euphoria yesterday was a little bit misplaced because, quite frankly, it's obvious, um, as I said, that the vaccine that we are currently talking about is not going to be made available to the public to general public in any event we're gonna to have to wait for the next one to, to before that's going to happen for most people it's going to be the summer i would imagine before they get past all of the various groups that they have to give it to first so i mean we're talking about you know a long way off really i was calling yesterday for some kind of roadmap that we could get from downing street to say right this is what we can do in january this is what we can do in february i think that's a very long way off yeah i i think the the, the one thing that i've noticed with the uk government's kind of press briefings is that we were having this world-class test and trace system, which obviously I don't think anybody would say anyone near that. <laughs> no. Then we were going to have this, everybody's going to be tested, yeah. possibly weekly. Right. We know any of that. Now it's the vaccine. So I think they're very quick to kind of, maybe to boost a little bit of morale, to put some information out there. 
but you're right you've got to then look take a step back and say what does this actually mean and mm. you i can't see the vaccine being fully rolled out as you say this one's very difficult to roll out nationally it's going to be perhaps the oxford vaccine that's been talked about where that's much easier to transport and give the vaccine that hasn't been approved yet it's when that comes online that that's going to probably be where, you, where you're going to start seeing the biggest differences yeah and yeah i think normal life even the the vaccine companies themselves are saying you're talking the summer so I think yesterday and this morning talking about the vaccine, we're going to get it before Christmas. Some people will be thinking, oh, we'll be fine by Christmas. No, we're not going to be fine by Christmas. This is going to continue. And we do need to continue, I think, to control the spread of the virus in a sensible manner, looking at tiered restrictions mm. and just bringing it back to Wales, that closing hospitality in the northwest of Wales when cases are very high in the southwest valleys just does seem a very strange policy indeed. Yeah, and you put out an interesting tweet yesterday with some uh, some graphics on the north-south divide. Tell us a bit about that, because what you're seeing yeah. uh, is there's a lot more infection in the north of England than there is in the south. So so I think one of the things that the, the public will see every day is how many people are testing positive for coronavirus. Remember, a lot of those are people who will be relatively kind of, won't have a massive impact on them. They, we know that most of the deaths, over 80% of the deaths have been for people over the age of 70. So it's very important to look at deaths. But if you look at the southeast of the country now and the southwest of the country, people are dying having tested positive for COVID. But the number of people dying is no higher than what you'd expect for the mm. time of year. So that does give some indication that people are dying from COVID, Mike, but potentially they may have died anyway. Right. But it's quite clear the data showing in the north of the country, we are having excess deaths. So what excess deaths are, is if you look at the number of deaths in any one week in the particular part of the country, what you would expect based on say a five year average, are we above that? Now we've been above that in the northwest and northeast now for, for several weeks. And we know if you track that back, say two months ago, we've had high cases in the northwest and, and northeast. So my criticism, I think, from the national lockdown is that the data and the evidence suggests that some parts of the country is lower, some parts of the country is higher. So you target your policy where you know it's higher, because where do you draw the line? Do you have a, a Europe lockdown? Do you have a UK lockdown? Right. Do you have a country lockdown within the UK? You've got to look at the data and have a proportionate response to kind of control the virus. Yeah, exactly right. And when you say it's above average in the north and northeast and the northwest, how much above the average is it? So we, we're talking about 30% in, in the northwest at okay. the moment, above average. Luckily, we've started seeing over the last, say, two weeks, uh, hospital admissions coming down quite rapidly in both the northwest and the northeast. And then if admissions are coming down, that should lend itself to some deaths. But those admissions were starting to come down in the northwest before the national lockdown, actually when the tiered system was coming yes. in. So I think there's evidence that the tiered system was working before we had that kind of yeah. spooky Halloween um, presentation, which, which we've talked about before, where we was kind of Armageddon mm. was going to happen. And then right. we went into the national but also, it would be helpful if the government were as honest as, as you're being, Jamie, because, you know, for example, we see Kent going into a, a tier three lockdown, and we were told that was because of an increase in hospital admissions in one very small part of Kent around the Thanet area. Um, and yet the entire county gets locked down uh, into a point where nobody can do anything. Well, I think transparency has been one of the kind of the, the biggest casualties with data from this pandemic. Yeah. Data has been wheeled out. We see graphs saying, I think in Wales, to justify closing the pubs is that 1,700 people were going to die over the winter if we didn't close the pubs and hospitality. Mm. I've not seen how that has been calculated. It's not been kind of made available, etc. And ultimately, the, the public need to know what the data is showing. I'll say I tweet on a daily basis showing the hospital admissions, the cases, the deaths. It's quite clear, you know, the second wave has had detrimental impact in some parts of, of the UK more than others. 
But a blanket approach uh, where you just treat everything the same or close all the pubs in one country or lock down the whole of another country. We know a lot more now than what we didn't know in March. We, mm. you know, in March, we didn't know who would die from the virus. So maybe it made more sense to do what we did back in March. But no, we know far more than we did then. And what we also know now, Mike, is that for people who know they're vulnerable, people in certain age groups, they are socially distancing yeah. and accept so, so people who are really vulnerable, who are really scared of the virus and may die if they catch it, well, they can avoid the pubs, for example, in Wales. They don't need to go to the right. pubs. So we know a lot more. We need more, better transparency. And I would say the data clearly shows that we're on a downward trend, which is a good thing. Absolutely. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, their former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics, talking an awful lot of sense, but also using data in a way that it's supposed to be used, which is to tell the truth. Why can't the government do that? Why do they find it so difficult? Uh, Jonathan Van Tam, JVT, as he's now known, uh, comes out there and makes all sorts of uh, statements, makes all these kind of platitudes, talks about rates going up here, rates going up there. What they, I've never heard the government say uh, that there is a 30% increase in excess deaths in the north of England, um, but not in the south of England. Why can they not tell us that particular truth? What is going on? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know, it's amazing sometimes how people get uh, so worked up about certain things that happen uh, on social media. I put out what can only be described as a very innocent picture this morning uh, of an empty cycle lane. Because one of the things I've noticed about the weather in this country is that whenever it starts raining or gets a bit dark and wet and nasty, uh, cyclists suddenly disappear uh, from trace. You don't see them. In the summer, when it's really, really nice weather, you see all these mo- uh, sort of men in Lycra cycling around as if their life depended on it. And, of course, we hear all the time from the cycling fraternity, oh, that it's very healthy for you, it's much better than driving, you know, it saves all sorts of pollution, saves the planet, uh, and also it's very, very good for you. Um, in the end, however, uh, I was in Kensington High Street yesterday where they have put in a cycle lane which they're now going to rip up and rip out. They cost a million pounds to put it in. Uh, That was what the public purse paid for it. And now they're going to take it down. So that didn't work terribly well, did it? So I wonder why it is that when the weather turns a little bit cold and wet, the cyclists suddenly don't think it's as healthy as it used to be uh, to cycle. So they don't bother. So presumably they're in cars. Or maybe they're on public transport. Who can say? We might talk about that coming up uh, very shortly on this show. 0344 499 is the number to call us on. Let's talk now, though, to Major General Tim Cross, military logistics expert, because amongst all the other things that we learned yesterday, uh, we found out that basically uh, the army is going to be used to, to transport the vaccine around the country to make sure it gets delivered on time, to make sure that uh, the hospitals that need it get it, and to make sure that it's probably secure enough uh, so that nobody nicks it, to be honest. Uh, Major General Tim, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning to you. <clears throat> I mean, I'm a bit concerned about, uh, I'm always a bit concerned about being called an expert. Are you? But... Well, listen, don't worry. I won't refer to you as that if you prefer. Um, <laughs> but you certainly will know a thing or two about moving stuff around because the logistics core uh, that I was proud and, and, and lucky enough to get to know in Bosnia many years ago uh, oh. asked, asked, asked some people that I have a great deal of regard for. So, you know, they were sort of moving things around the like of which I'd never seen. Um, and I guess what we've got here is something that needs to be reasonably securely kept, but also moved around with, with, with some speed. Yeah, um, the I mean, logistics, you've alluded to this, really, but logistics is about getting the right stuff to the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, and from a military point of view, obviously, we're normally picking up heavy metal, moving it around the world to places like the, the Balkans and, mm. and Iraq and so on. I mean, this is not that equivalent. It's not it's not huge 
quantities of heavy stuff. Right. Um, but it is it is a lot of stuff to go to a lot of people. Mm. Um, now, let me just start off by saying a couple of things. First of all, the military are not about to take this over. There's, I am a bit concerned that a lot of the media seem to think the army or the well, they often talk about the army, but you know the military as a whole, because we're talking about army, navy, and air force. Um, are going to come in and somehow, you know, save the world, deliver all this stuff. Right. We haven't we haven't got the capacity to do that. We have been supporting the government in COVID uh, all year, as, as you know, helping to, to build uh, the Nightingale hospitals, yeah. helping to, to deliver stuff, helping to set up the test and trace uh, and, and run some of those locations. All of this is under the umbrella of something called the military aid to the civil authority. And it's a long established way of the military helping uh, in floods, in fires, in, in prison strikes, in you know, in all sorts of stuff over mm. the years, mouth crisis and so on. Um, so there's a well-established principle here. And what the military will do is put some key people into the headquarters and, and the, the council, local resilience forums and so forth, to help them think through what the plan should look like of how this thing will, do, will, will you know, how it will operate, right. what the plan is. And that is related to when is this vaccine going to be available? Where does it need to go to? How quickly does it need to go there? Where are we going to distribute it to and so forth? Mm. Planners, staff officers who are used to planning that stuff and worked for me for years when I was a brigade and divisional commander in places like the Balkans, mm. planning the flow, the timely decision making and the flow of this stuff. Then we will put out people to help distribute it. We will put out people, I think, to help deliver it to the various places. But we will not, you know, we, we will have to work alongside and we work for government, local government and the other players who are involved. In yes, this. because presumably one of the, the jobs that, the, that the, the army and others have fulfilled is part. They took part in some of the testing operations up in Liverpool, I understand. Uh, and they've also, I think, been involved in other parts of the country where testing centres have been set up. And it sounds as though the government's plan is to set up kind of vaccination centres as well, which might be which might be in buildings which would otherwise be used for something else yeah yeah that's right i mean clearly getting the vaccine i mean the new the, the first vaccine is going out because of the restrictions over temperature and so forth mm. need to be moved in specialist vehicles and can only be held in one place so right. people will have to go to the probably the hospitals but it's hopefully as, as the other vaccine begins to arrive it needs to be delivered to care homes it can be delivered to i think people are talking about uh, stadiums yeah local churches i mean every every parish in this country has got a church mm. Um, so why not deliver to, to local churches and let and let people go there mm. or any other community you know facility and the other aspect of this which I, which you may or may not want to talk about is is the leadership of encouraging people to take this flipping thing mm. you know we do not want the sewers of social media to convince people that this is you know don't don't go anywhere near it we need community leaders we need uh, senior you know, uh, uh, officials, maybe some military, maybe police, maybe government officials. And actually people like yourself going to these communities and being seen to take this jab and say, you know, we need this uh, and you should take it. When, when I was in the first, first Gulf War, we were f filled full of all sorts of stuff because we were worried about chemical and nerve agent yeah. attacks and so on. And it was the officers, the senior officers and the officers who stood alongside the soldiers opened up their sleeve and had these things jabbed into their arms, saying to the boys and girls, we need this, it's to protect your lives and to protect yeah. the lives of others. And, and, and I'm first in the queue, 
And now, come on, let's get it all done. Yeah, do you know um, what I think about all of that, though, uh, Tim, is that, you know, there's a point at which you have to be careful that you don't over-egg the pudding, if you like. So, for example, by the time this vaccine is made available to most people, because my understanding of this first sort of lot of vaccines is that it's only going to be made available to people inside of hospitals, by and large, mostly for patients, but also for health workers as well. And it's going to be yep. the next wave that, that, that you will maybe be distributing in churches and wherever. And I wonder yep. that by the time that happens... You know, the clamour around people saying that they're, they're not sure about it or they think it hasn't been tested enough and they don't want to take it will have died down sufficiently so that the very, there will only be a very few people left um, who kind of are like, oh, we're definitely not going to take it, you know? And if you, and if yeah. you keep telling people that you must take it, there'll be, a, there'll be a kind of slight backlash against that. Well, yeah, OK. I mean, I don't, I don't dispute the latter point, but um, <laughs> got to be careful what I say here. But the last thing we need... And, I, and to be honest, I'm not having a go, having a crack at you or the media, but the last thing we need is the media watching this thing roll out and then finding the first bloke or lady who gets a headache after three yeah. days having had the jab and then saying, crikey, this is terrible, we're all going to be right. dead by Monday. No, listen, I, I, I totally go with that. I get that as well. And I, and I don't think anybody who's responsible in the media would do that, to be honest. But of course, the sure. media now is very multifaceted, as you said, uh, the sure. sewer of social media, very well named, I'm afraid, because that's what it is. And there's an awful lot of people, for, for, for whatever reason, uh, who want to be disrupted who want to be difficult uh, but there's also people who are genuinely asking genuine questions and I think those sure. questions need to be answered rather than slapped away uh, as if you're some kind of mad anti-vaxxer you know yeah you know sure and and I, I'm it's it's all about recognizing the you know what we're going through here as a nation and we're all part of it and communicating that as you've said is is, is very important mm. and being honest and open about it um, so you're you know I think I, I would hope that you're right that having got through this initial phase, um, by the by the time we're into the new year, with hopefully the AstraZeneca uh, Oxford uh, you know vaccine around, most people will be, and I think mo- you know the majority of people are pretty sensible. At yes, the end of the day. I think that's uh, absolutely right. Going back just to the to the sort of the the, the, the meat and bones of it all, um, in terms of transporting things around at very cold temperatures, for example, minus yeah. seventy degrees, are there such uh, uh, lorries that have got that kind of level of refrigeration? There are, but not not uh, just in the military. I mean, we. I'm, look, I'm thinking back now to what we did have in the military. We moved. Um, I don't think we've got. I don't think the military have got those sort of vehicles. Mm. To be honest, we we had got fridge, fridge freezers and in inverted commas. You know, uh, vehicles that carried on the back containers, which had generators which kept the temperature low, um, in the in the container. But I don't think to that degree. Mm. There are, nonetheless, there are vehicles around that will do that. They're not. You know, not huge numbers, uh, which is why I think, you know, I've got to be careful again that I don't want to be casting anything. But if we can get a vaccine in that doesn't need that sort of specialised distribution, then obviously we'll be better off as a result. Yes. So, yes, there are vehicles around. Yes, it can be distributed. It has to be done carefully. And um, but but we, the military, do not own large numbers of those sorts of vehicles. And I don't know whether you're able to say or whether, you know, uh, any ideas on the timing of all of this? No, I've got I mean, I've got no more knowledge than, than you have. I've got loads. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Major General Tim Cross, military logistics expert. Delightful to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, interesting times we live in uh, because the, the, the conversation which is going to be had and which I'm very willing to have with any number of you uh, and any number of people uh, outside of this building um, is 
if you have got reservations, why have you got reservations? Think about what those reservations are and find out what you can do about those reservations and find out whether you can um, have your fears assuaged or whether somebody can answer a question that you may have. And if you have a question, make the question available to me and I'll ask the person that might know the answer. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, we are going uh, to Scotland because, not least, uh, I miss the place very much and haven't been there for a while. In fact, I may never go back the way things are going. Lewis McLeod is with us. Lewis, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well indeed. How is the frozen north? You're looking well? Yeah, well, it was snowing. It's, we, we woke up to a lovely winter wonderland, albeit a centimetre deep. Has that uh, not been banned snowing. by uh, by Nicola Sturgeon, the snow? <laughs> yes, it's only it's only snowing there in sectors. There will be sectors, no snow uh, to fall. There's no snow in sectors three and four, <laughs> and it's terribly slippy, so be careful, but just stay indoors. Yes. If Anborough, he, he might say now, ladies and gentlemen, of course, the, this year has, of course, been noted that it's the warmest year on record. And uh, if you stream television shows in standard definition, uh, it's, it's much better for the bladder. So stream in lower definition and save your bladder yes. as well as your television. Yes, I must admit, um, uh, Sir David, whenever uh, I was told that it was the warmest uh, year on record when I lived in Scotland, it didn't seem like it. <laughs> yes, you had to climb a tree to have a pee in most winters, but not really lately. In the last 20 years, you're, you're sunbathing, as, as far as I'm aware, Yes, in Bonnie Glasgow. Yes. Now, normally I would expect Ian Blackford uh, to ask for some money for the snow, because he asks for money on every other occasion. I think an increase in the winter fuel allowance on, on, allowance on a pay-per-view day is very, very important. So you can watch your television in standard definition or indeed in a wind-up toy. And we should be getting at least £5 a day. Now, Ian, I'm very worried about you because when I saw you this week on Prime Minister's Questions, you were looking terribly pale. Have you had some uh, work done? <laughs> it's my reflective suit. I'm going down the ABC route. Soon I'll be singing Poison Arrow. I'm 
most ridiculous apparel you've ever seen in your life. How many layers does a man need before you call him a politician? Yes, and why no tartan when he's on anymore? Well, Nicholas Fairbairn, he's, he, he, he sang that song sheet for years and looked utterly ridiculous. And I'm not going down the same route, Mr. Squeaker. <laughs> now, I must ask Jeremy Vine to comment because earlier on um, I put out a tweet that said that when the rain falls, hardly anybody ever cycles around in London. And Jeremy's normally got a thing or two to say about that. Well, we must be very careful when we're out cycling. And, of course, we, we give our deepest sympathies to all the Scots who've decided to bear the snow in their tricycles and their skateboards and their roller skates and go hell for leather up the old Bonnie Bray. But first, here's Toto and Africa. <laughs> Do you know, I've often wondered what it must be like to do a show like that. You know, where you're talking about some serious issues, getting people to call in, getting guests on, and then you play a song. It's yeah, kind exactly. of mad, isn't it? That's great. I mean, and it has nothing to do with the subject that he's talking no. about either. No. I mean, imagine, imagine they've probably got an entire department at Radio 2 to work out <laughs> how, just how much they can make sure the song doesn't reflect what it is they're trying to say, <laughs> just in case they get into trouble. It's the hottest year on record. Here's I'm Speeding on Some White Crystals by Big Crosby. <laughs> I'll tell you the other thing uh, that I found very uh, amusing about the whole uh, radio business and the TV business today. I don't know if you do Jonathan Van Tam, but Jonathan Van Tam is on a kind of world tour today, basically telling everybody how great the vaccine is, despite the fact that he doesn't know what's in it, because uh, he can't answer those questions at the moment until he gets the list of ingredients. He sounds like a martial arts genius, doesn't he? A bit like Boris's speeches. Yeah, yeah. Think, you know, I mean, we did a bit of jujitsu. I mean, it's not quite Churchillian. We fought them on the beaches, pointed up the searchlights, knocked them out, boff. We did a bit of black belt Boris. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like a sort of toot toot on the yeah. bugle. Yeah. If, uh, if Narcos had uh, a Baron von Munchausen, it would be perhaps Boris Johnson, yeah. Yes, it would. And JVT is a ridiculous kind of name, isn't it? I mean, it's, it makes him sound like some kind of superhero or, <laughs> a, clean, or a cleaning, stars in. A cleaning product that, of some kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> That's a great name, don't you think? That's a brilliant name, but clearly his parents were high when they named their kid Jean yeah absolutely well Jean-Claude was already taken Jean already Claude, yeah, that Van Tam, <laughs> so they couldn't call him that what about it's Nigel Glaswegian Jean-Claude Van Tam uh, exactly yourself. yeah he's a bit going uh... for your pint of milk careful <laughs> missus you might slip in your ears <laughs> Old uh, Nigel Farage was on uh, Talk Radio this week telling Dan oh, Wooden yeah. uh, about how he rescued a couple of migrants. He's, he's, he's gone over to the other side. <laughs> Let's not blow this out of proportion, Mike. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's me. I'm the, 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 the fifth emergency service. You know, you can always rely on me. We had a bit of difficulty getting them on the boat because, <laughs> you know, the Coast Guards were extending their arm. I was extending a pint. They said, look, turn the kayak over and we'll open up a pub. It'll be clear of restrictions. It'll be like Radio Caroline, except in a pub. <laughs> Have you had a word with uh, your friend Mr. Trump lately, Nigel? Well, you know, oh, well, yes, of course. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's absolutely cock a hoop at the moment. I've got to say, Mike, you know, Biden, you know, I, he said, I'm going to run again because Biden clearly can't because most of the Georgia fraudulent votes landed on his foot as he tried to hightail it out the court. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, got he's, his foot in a, he's got his foot in a boot now. He's put, he's put in the boot in quite literally, actually. You know, I mean, he, he does. yes, exactly. I don't know whether, you know, he's going to go very far with this one. But I'm going to run again because it's going to take a guy at 78 at least four years to recover. No more running up to the podium like an athlete. You know, he's going to be limp. 
we do. The little pinky planky tune as he limps up to the podium. Limpy Biden, limpy Biden with his little words. That's what I'm going to say, because as Mickey, out of Rocky, you're a bum. Yeah. You know, who uses the word braggadocious? No more of that, you see. Oh, exactly. It's working. Exactly. And, and finally, uh, Lewis, I think we should probably tip the hat to the fact that Boris Johnson is on a bit of a slippery slope himself now, because, of course, uh, even his own backbenchers are not voting for some of the stuff he wants to do. And Rishi Sunak must be warming up the old um, uh, the old coffee warmer uh, for his uh, his new suit and his new job in t- uh, number 10. Well, actually, when I was listening to Rishi Sunak, he's lowered his tone slightly. He's becoming a bit more, you know what I mean, bling. Yeah. If he could just bring his trouser leg down a little bit, he wouldn't look quite as ridiculous. And it's just, I don't know, he's just, he, he just needs to sharpen up his suits within a lot better. I mean, I practically, his knees, but, you know, yeah. he's getting there. What did you make he's, of the... He's what, almost uh, PM. What did you make of the hoodie uh, with the shirt and tie look? <laughs> well, that's just, you know, that's when politicians turn up at the Brit Awards. It was just a big boo, you know, it's like, why yeah. go away? <laughs> and, and did he not also slightly understate the wealth of his wife, where he said that she owned a small company, uh, refusing to actually acknowledge the fact that she's apparently richer than the Queen? <laughs> <laughs> Get used to it being minted, right? Episode 9, 10 and 11 of The Crown. That's you taking over. Yes, Brilliant. exactly. Brilliant. When are you making it back down south, Lewis? We must get you in the studio. Well, I, um, I, well probably next week. I think our, our, our restrictions end, having, uh, you know, just keeping an eye on what... They're uh, never ending Nicholas up there, are Oh, uh, well, I, I saw Nicola on uh, uh, the First Minister, rather, on uh, GMB with, with Piers Morgan. And I mean, what, brilliant question. He said, well, if Boris says you're not having a referendum, you're not having it. And she couldn't really answer it, you know, no. I, I felt. She also looked like she'd been locked out of her house, you know. <laughs> Where's my keys? Can again? Yeah, you've got to be um, careful with that and govern, haven't you? You know, you don't want to lose your keys and govern. <laughs> Certainly in the snow. <laughs> She's true to her roots. A big snowman. I uh, know, absolutely you know, right. Line. Right. right, good stuff. Listen, Lewis, we'll maybe see you next week. Take it easy. Good stuff. Lewis McLeod there uh, with a man of many voices and faces and, uh, and characters and all sorts of things. Yeah, this is what you need in life is Lewis McLeod to cheer you up and make you laugh because that's what he does. Marvellous man. Thank you very much indeed. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Well, it's not surprising I sometimes get a bit tongue-tied. I mean, you might know how many words I speak on a weekly basis. You know, there's an awful lot of them. And most of them are correct, I want you to know. Let's talk now uh, about the environment, though, because it's one of my favourite subjects. You know, we heard about the green revolution that Boris Johnson wants everybody to take part in. I think it's a load of old cobblers. Let's talk to Harry Wilkinson from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Uh, Harry, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you. Now, I mean, I suppose we knew that uh, Boris Johnson would not stop at the uh, business of doing away with uh, petrol and diesel cars in 2030. I'm still not entirely certain how that's going to work because there's still going to be people driving around in petrol and diesel cars, which are not new, presumably for at least another 10 years. Well, exactly. And uh, these new gas boilers, the Prime Minister wants to uh, install 600,000 per year by 2030. So that's £9 billion. Right. Uh, right there. And uh, when we're thinking about recovering from this uh, pandemic, or at least the lockdown restrictions that have caused so much economic damage, uh, to be spending all that money on making people's energy bills more expensive uh, seems a totally baffling approach to 
uh, rebuilding the economy. Well, it really does. And it's and it's and the piece of the Times, and the Times is quite a sort of eco-friendly newspaper these days. It's a penultimate paragraph before they say, a typical heat pump which draws heat from the ground costs between seven and £19,000. Uh, that's absolutely right. And uh, we're talking about... Politicians speak all the time about how there's a housing crisis mm. and we see how expensive houses are, are becoming. And so to be adding maybe up to £20,000 on the cost of building um, a new house is uh, totally objectionable. It will mean that more people can't afford to buy a house. And even when they do, it will mean that their uh, energy bills are three to four times higher than they need to be. Right. It costs about that much times more to heat your house with electricity uh, compared to gas. And the government says, well, we'll have more energy efficiency measures, but all those energy efficiency measures cost money as well. Hmm. Um, and uh, the GWPF has done an estimate suggesting that creating that energy efficiency for the whole UK housing stock uh, would cost upwards of two trillion pounds, and that's an estimate that's been supported by the Energy Technologies Institute as well. Yes, I've actually got a look at one of these things. Um, a guy called David has sent me this uh, on uh, on Twitter, and it's a very complicated-looking contraption. And he said uh, quite rightly that he's just installed one of these things, um, and it's got a big black sort of tank, a lot of copper pipes coming out of it, and three sort of cylindrical devices that, that are up on the wall, and that mm. apparently is is what is being talked about and he says that you can't I mean you need quite a big space for it first of all you also need very high levels of insulation and you need underfloor heating to make it work properly so I mean it's not a simple process either and if you're replacing what is effectively a very efficient combi boiler in a cupboard above the sink say you know this is not going to be able to do that indeed it's a really intensive uh, project to get one of these things installed you need to dig up the lawn as well to right. get the heat from the ground up through the pipes. Um, but I think I would really urge the government, look at the expertise here. We're always told to listen to the science, listen to the experts. Well, there's been so many economic studies into climate change. Um, and whereas they differ on the numbers, there's a broad agreement that if you cut emissions too fast, um, that's going to be economically damaging in the long run. And you're actually going to introduce more costs than any benefits you might have yeah. from that. So well, there's, I mean, a, there's an optimal rate of uh, uh, reducing emissions and actually uh, sort of estimates for climate sensitivity. So that's how fast the planet will warm due to a doubling of CO2 emissions. Those estimates are coming down to much more moderate levels. So this policy is going to be even more... Um, outrageously expensive let's look at what they're doing in the eu mm. they've got a 40 percent target by 2030 in the eu and we're now talking about 69 percent why on earth should we be going so much faster um, than comparable countries yeah. um, it's uh, beyond me well they have this kind of obsession don't they uh, the politicians of this country now who seemingly want to be able to say that we're the first at doing things like this vaccine you know we have this massive great you know sort of fanfare yesterday we're the first to approve this vaccine but you know that's all very well but when you actually sit down and look at the detail of it you go well you might have approved it but it's nowhere ready near ready to be rolled out to the population so it's all very well saying we're the first but it seems that that's their kind of obsession isn't it exactly these are targets they're not realistic um uh policies 
I mean, just think of the huge undertaking it would be to go into everyone's house, you get a knock on the door from the man from the government who says, I'm here to replace your gas boiler, I'm here to increase uh, your energy bills by perhaps up to three times. Who on earth is going to accept this? Um, I certainly wouldn't want mine, and I would do everything I could to, to uh, not allow uh, the government to do this. And they don't actually work, by the way, these uh, uh, heat pumps in the winter. Right. Oh, uh, when we need energy, when we need heating in this country. Yeah. So actually what happens is these systems rely on electricity in those periods uh, and will, will result in huge extra demand on the grid uh, during those times. So we're going to have all this extra electric uh, vehicle use, mm. which will again increase the demand on the grid. Uh, and we're supposed to double down on that with even more demand yes. from these... Uh, heat pumps. Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, going back to the car conversation, because only last week, I think, it was it was reported that uh, the production of electric cars is actually no more clean for the environment than the production of regular cars, which makes sense because you're still making everything aside from the engine. You know, you're still manufacturing pieces of metal uh, or whatever, uh, you know, material you're using. It could be plastic, I suppose, in some cases. Um, and you're still manufacturing tyres and you're still manufacturing all the instrumentation and you're still manufacturing, you know, the car. So actually, um, the fact that it's that it's being run slightly more green on electricity doesn't really matter. Not at all. And actually, we see electric vehicles uh have higher emissions in their construction yeah. than conventional cars. So actually they take a certain amount of time before they've paid that CO2 debt off. So when you consider it in the main, actually the extraordinary investments that you would need to make these things work, to build all the uh, charging stations and so forth, mm. all of that investment delivers a very small return in terms of CO2 emissions right. that you would actually be looking for. So uh, these these are not well thought through policies, and indeed, we we don't need them. The, the the economy is moving in a much cleaner direction, and that's being supported by innovation and competition. Um, and these policies banning gas boilers, banning petrol and diesel cars, uh, these could be very counterproductive um, and have huge uh, costs, and particularly to the poorest people. Well, exactly right. I mean, when I heard this kind of green revolution stuff that he was coming out with a couple of weeks ago, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, um, it just didn't seem achievable to me. And they talked a lot about creating hundreds of thousands of jobs and they pointed to Grimsby as a place where that has happened. And I looked into Grimsby and yes, there are some jobs that have been created, but not very many uh, on the, well, the sort of offshore wind business. Um, and the fact that they make the odd propeller up in Hull seems to have got them all very excited. But there's no real evidence that any of this will create work for lots of people, is there? No, most of these manufacturing uh, jobs for wind turbines are actually in uh, places like China. Um, and if you consider just a few people need to visit a wind turbine a few times a year uh, to make sure it's working properly. Uh, and you compare that to the hundreds of people, perhaps you might work at a gas power station. Right. Uh, this is a, a less job intensive form of uh, generating power. Mm. Um, and these projection, projections of future jobs are, are not additional jobs to the economy. You could create all sorts of bogus industries um, and employ people in them, 
the question is, is this a sensible approach? Um, and I really think this isn't at all. No. And while they spend billions and billions of pounds now, seemingly willy nilly, without really any thought for what's going to happen when somebody asks for the money back. Um, are you sure that they would want to roll this out and pay for it? Or would they not try and make us somehow birch, uh, sort of shoulder some of the burden as well of putting in heat pumps? Well, of course, people are going to end up having to pay in one way or the other. Mm. That when the government's spending that money, they're only taking it from us through our taxes. So mm. uh, people will end up paying for these policies. There's no doubt about that. Right. I mean, we already pay a sort of green tax, don't we, on our energy bills anyway. Where does that go? Well, that goes to uh, renewable energy generators uh, in the main um, who, uh, who claim huge amounts. And uh, we hear a lot about how cheap renewables are today, but what people are talking about is new build. Actually, uh, we're, we're stuck in contracts uh, that were signed that lasted up to 15, sometimes even 20 years. So we're locked into high prices uh, for renewables for quite some time. Yeah, well, that's similar to the argument that's made about the car tax, isn't it? Because at the moment, if you've got an electric car, you don't pay any road tax. But once everybody's got an electric car, they'll have to put the road tax back on. That's absolutely right. And uh, there's, there's no sustainable economics here. These are policies that would cost so much more. And most importantly, those costs bear upon the poorest people. When you think of people buying new houses, those first-time house buyers, maybe your young couple, aren't really as wealthy as your average home buyer. Uh, and you're, you're, you're raising the bar to buy new houses uh, even further with all these restrictive policies. Mm. We can have a cleaner future. It is going to be uh, a less polluting future where in carbon emissions are lower, air pollution is lower. Uh, there's really no doubt about that. The question is, why should we go so fast um, and, and introduce uh, emissions policies that cost far more than they will actually mm. deliver in any benefits? Yes, all? I think that's a very good question. Harry, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Harry Wilkinson, the head of policy at the Global Warming Policy Foundation, with some serious questions once again uh, about this government's kind of future policy on green energy. Because quite frankly, it's going to either cost them a fortune, which in turn is then going to cost us a fortune. And as uh, you heard from Harry there, there's no real need for it. It seems to me that they're all getting excited about this climate change conference in Glasgow next year. And they want to get as many policies out there as they possibly can. But it's all a bit mad, isn't it? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.